All right, this is Doc Scott with day two, January 2nd of No More Cycles 90 Day Devotional. It's uh, four minutes after seven. I'm working on doing this by seven. Um, any rate, um, does this color make my face look fat? Okay, no, all right. All right, so today's topic. Um, essentially, shame can be kind of nebulous. You know, like when you say that word, people know sort of what you mean, but they really don't mean, um, they don't know rather what it all entails. And it can be nebulous from that standpoint. So um, one thing it's easier to do is paint a picture of what it looks like. Um, you know, what does it look like when we experience it? And, you know, everything starts young. A lot of the base of shame that gets formed in our heart starts fairly early and some of the early deprivations and rejections and kind of places of abuse. All of those things communicate something to us. They all tell us something about ourselves. So you have a couple of different places. You have the sin that I get involved with myself and what it does to me. Look at the prodigal son. You get a little picture of that. What did he come to believe himself being? A somebody who was only worthy to feed pigs. But then there's the stuff that other people do. And one of my uh, favorite old movies is Julia Roberts. And Julia Roberts, she's not a movie. Okay, it's this is pre-Adderall, so give me one more minute here. Um, is Pretty Woman. Thank you. And, you know, she's a prostitute. It's a Cinderella story. Um, and at one point, you know, Richard Gere asked her the question, like, why did you become a prostitute? And, you know, she was, you know, my humor way of saying this was, well, it wasn't like, you know, Sally wanted to be a nurse and Polly wanted to be a lawyer and I wanted to be a prostitute. No, it wasn't like that. Her answer was that the bad things stuck. That her mom said to her, that if there were 51 guys in a room and 50 were good and one was a bum, she'd find the one. And so essentially she was just saying that the things that got said, the things that happened to me became identity markers in my life. And they told me who I was. And so she literally drew what she believed about herself, herself. as a man thick up in his heart, you know, that's, that's how we are, right? What we think in our heart is what we believe about ourselves. And we become it. So, um, but also, you know, the other part of this I wanted to highlight was children. You know, we think about the things that happen to kids. And when I look around my room and my classroom through these years, I know that some of my students have been through more in their short 14, 15 years than any than there than many of us have had in our whole life, and so for children, it's it's good to remember that perception is everything, and children are totally egocentric, meaning everything happens, um, that happens rather in the household is about me. So if mom or dad are fighting, then that's probably my fault. So t children pick up on the tension, they pick up on the dysfunction, and they try to they try to fix it. And for a lot of them, you know, they've already had some major things going on inside of them. But there's one thing good about the things, well, good in a sense, that happen to children when they have experienced early abuse is number one, they're literally physically able to disconnect emotionally from it. 
Um, that means that usually it gets buried somewhere for future reference or becomes part of the hard drive. Whatever the information of the event tells them about themselves, it becomes part of what runs in the background and kind of like the hard drive of your heart. So it's there. For some, it erupts quickly, you know, and their emotions and behavior betray them later in life and you, they, they begin to act out of what's happened to them. So I remember one time when I was young, um, I was about five, four or five years old, and we came home. My mom was a single parent for a good season, and the house was in total shambles. The door, front door, was swinging, swung wide open. Obviously, we had been robbed and ransacked, and my, I remember my mom being in tears and calling the police, and in the middle of this chaos, I looked over and onto the little terrazzo floor in our uh, family room, and I saw this brand new big wheel. Okay, I dated myself when I said big wheel. But um, her boss had come home that day and put it together as a surprise for me. And so in the middle of this, I kind of got the nod from mom, like, yeah, go ahead and go ride. And so essentially, you know, I went out and I continued to be a kid. That mean, because kids are resilient. So as I rode my big wheel in the safe world that was outside at that time, all of the chaos of the bomb had already gone on. And kids are a lot like that. They can have things that blow up inside of them, but they look fairly normal um, in a lot of ways until things start, you know, uh, manifesting later because of what they're carrying on the inside. So egocentric. Um, the 18-year-old in me, I would have to say the single most significant event that really laid the foundation for shame in my own life was when my biological father walked out when I was five. Now, if you would have asked the 18-year-old or young adult what that was about, he would have said it was about, oh, my dad was chasing a skirt, right? Because that's the rational mind of an 18-year-old who's trying to process, you know, what, what happened when he was a kid. Children, on the other hand, um, are so much more egocentric because essentially what the kid says when that happens isn't it's about some flirtatious thing that's going on with dad and some woman. The kid says, what's wrong with me that daddy doesn't love me anymore? Do you see the difference? Internally, because kids are egocentric, that communicates something to them. It says something about them being or feeling defective or wrong. Dad leaving had to be about me. And that's where that voice of shame, like I said, it's easier sometimes to paint a picture of what it looks like, but that's what it looks like. And so what did I carry in my heart after that um, as a result of that, you know, that major event? You know, essentially, it kind of um, put me in the spot where I always just kind of doubted God. I doubted, you know, I always felt like I was going to be abandoned. My biggest fear in life was being abandoned. So a lot of the behavior and the coping mechanisms that I developed were about trying to, um, trying not to be rejected or abandoned. And so, at any rate, I'm going to leave it there because I said these would be about 10 minutes. And that's the voice of shame. But here's the good news. There is no reparenting. You know, I know if I look around the room, 
my students are probably broke in a hundred different ways. It's kind of like if you take 10 drinking glasses and you drop them all from the same height, they all break differently, right? And they look different, but the core stuff is still pretty much the same because you're looking at deprivations, abandonments, early rejections, and that kind of um, becomes, like I said, the bedrock of what goes on in their heart. I was um, fortunate that um, I was able to access a lot of things from God that really began to change things on the inside of me in terms of my feeling of abandonment. But I want to leave us with that. I want to pray for us. Um, I thank you guys for joining me on my 90-day devotional, um, No More Cycles, Coming Out of Shame. The song today that I'll post later um, is um, Since, Since Your Love by um, United Pursuit, Will Reagan. Incredible song about being who we are and being made for God. You know, we are presence-oriented creatures created for him to live in union with him. Remember, shame is the big separator. And the thing that Jesus is healing is our connection. That, that separation between me and parts of myself, between me and others, and me and God is changing. So for our, let's just pray. Um, Father, I just ask that um, you'd begin to illuminate for us all the places that um, the voices of shame have kind of embedded in the hard drive of our heart that are there, that run in the background, and that you would begin to dismantle them with your words to us, Lord. You speaking two words to us by your spirit has the power to literally wipe out huge places of deficit in my heart. You are the only one, Lord Jesus, that has the right to define me as your creature. And I look to you and I repent for all of the ways that even in my brokenness, I look to everyone else to tell me who I am. Lord, you're the only one. There is no such thing as reparenting. And Jesus, you own the right to the gaps that are in my heart. You're the only one that can fill those. I thank you, Lord, for every parental figure, male and female, that you brought in my life, authority, that has been a conduit of your love and grace. But Lord, I know that the biggest part of that is all you, that you have to come fill this. And so we declare in Jesus' name that all the labels are breaking, are falling, that there is no veil of shame that can stay over me, Holy Spirit, as you begin to just break all that down and you show me who I am, tell me who I am, and I step into my identity with you. So we just make that our declaration. We are... In you, you are in us. We are one with you. And you, Lord Jesus, are the only one that has the right to define me. And I invite you today for all of us, because I'm walking this journey with you, to tell us who we are. Because you're our maker and father, and you're good. All right, see you tomorrow at 7 a.m. And I'll post the written part of this on my blog and on the link on Facebook and whatnot. Bless you guys.